Pastor. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, JR. Good morning, Doug. Always good to see you. Definitely good to see you too, man. So yeah, we, uh, we've been chatting recently about um, just the way in which kind of our, our times, our rhythms, how things kind of work in, in these, yeah, just interesting ways. And you had some really cool thoughts on what that's all about. Yeah, well, I, I recently read a book by Daniel Pink. I'm a huge Daniel Pink fan. He's written several great books, but his most recent one that came out about a year ago, I think, uh, is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And he basically said, we know the adage, timing is everything. But he said, why don't we then pay much attention to that fact that timing is everything? And so he looked at research and he actually addressed some really fascinating questions like, why, um, why should we avoid going to the hospital in the afternoon or why do regularly scheduled breaks significantly increase student scores in school or why this one freaked me out. Why do prison boards grant parole for more inmates in the morning than in the afternoon? And so he basically looked at the research and what he found was that everybody has a circadian rhythm, this sort of natural pattern of which we our energy, motivation, and happiness occurs. And he said, we all have a peak where we rise throughout the day, and then we all have a trough where we kind of bottom out on our energy and motivation and happiness. And then we rise again, what he calls a rebound. And then, um, and so he basically says, we all peak in terms of our energy, motivation, and happiness morning to right before lunch. So when you hit mid morning and late and late morning, we kind of we can feel that in our in our gut, right? We just know like that's when we're happiest and we're more motivated during that time. And then we hit lunch and we kind of go down into this trough, like on a graph. Uh, you see, it looks like a trough, and uh, and and that's sort of the post lunch coma that sets in. <laughs> and then and then we rebound and our energy from about four to six p.m. rises again. In that, and then after 6 p.m., it kind of tapers off and slides all the way until we slide into bed at night. And uh, so he said, why don't we pay more attention to our circadian rhythm, this rhythm that's built into us? And so he basically says, think about how you schedule your day. So he's a business writer and a leadership writer. So he's trying to get us to think, how do we be more productive and more efficient and maximize our potential? And those are all good things. But I had a question that, that a few months ago hit me is there anything for us to learn about Pink's writing as it relates to ministry? Mm. And so I began to just do these little experiments in my own life and realize, okay, so most of my energy, motivation, excitement, focus, happiness happens morning to right before lunch. What if that's when I put my deepest, most creative work, that's when I needed to kind of dig into that or a hard conversation or a hard project. I really needed to delve into that time. Um, maybe a difficult meeting with someone hitting them on their circadian rhythm when they're happiest is maybe better in the morning than in the afternoon. Then when I hit my trough, I mean, he recommends that's when we should be doing uh, things that don't take as much mental energy. So checking and responding to email, maybe some logistical or administrative details that we just need to do, but don't require a lot of us while we're in that trough. And then rising again, you know, I find it interesting in the trough, you know, Latin American countries and, and places like Spain have a siesta in the afternoon. They literally shut down the business and go home and have a nap during the, well, when do they do it? Right during the trough. Makes a lot of sense. And then thinking, well, when, when do bars, what do bars call four to 6 PM? They call it happy hour, which is interesting. That's our rebound. So we do have these rhythms. And so if timing is everything, it made me wonder, 
Uh, if timing is everything, does that matter in ministry? And so I've just been thinking through when I schedule things and how I schedule things. I even think through there's a circadian rhythm even to the week of a, of a pastor, right? Monday morning pastor, we call it this because we know the circadian rhythm of a pastor <laughs> right. is down on Monday. It right. is our trough of troughs. <laughs> and I think back to when we interviewed Tara Beth Leach, and she talked about Mondays being really difficult, and she tried to come in and work at it really hard on Mondays, and it wasn't working. So she reworked it and moved some other tasks to later in the week when she did things mattered in ministry. She was less irritable. She was more on top of it. She was less um, insecure or more secure, I should say, to what God had had for her mm. and who she was. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that and not just our daily rhythms of how we schedule things, teaching prep, preaching prep. Uh, when I would do premarital counseling and it was the first thing in the morning, it would wipe me out. <laughs> now, Megan would say, hey, you did a really good job in that premarital counseling or counseling situation. Um, but it, my rest of my day, I would be flat and wiped and just totally wiped emotionally for the rest of the day. So I realized that I had to put it toward the end of the day because then I had sort of the evening to recover. Um, but I just couldn't do it at the beginning because they might've been helped, but I was, it just ruined my day. Mm. And so I had to change that schedule. Um, again, my teaching, preaching prep is mostly done in the mornings. Um, even thinking about my week, but I think there's a circadian seasonal rhythm when it comes to the church. You know, we've talked about this before, right? January, everyone's excited. New year, new possibilities. We cast vision at churches. We launch new small groups, right? And then you kind of hit Easter and it goes down a little bit, but up until May and then June, July, it kind of troughs out in terms of momentum, giving, presence, uh, attendance, right? Um, and then kind of comes back up again for a rebound in September and October. School's back in session. We cast vision again. We launch more small groups. And and so we kind of use a little bit of the school rhythms as our own cultural and seasonal circadian rhythm in the church. And, uh, and so anyway, it's been fascinating. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Have you thought through that, Doug, before? Well, I, I probably haven't, I have not put words to it like you just have. And I think it, it totally makes sense. I think, well, here's a real great, real simple example. Uh, I I ref hockey games and I play hockey and that's always, it's a late night. And I basically ref one night a week, it's Monday nights, and I'm home by like 11.30. And I used to try to cram meetings in at like seven o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. And I just realized I can't, there's no way I can keep myself up with that rhythm. I, I'm just, I'm useless. I think too, like even realizing that space of, yeah, that totally makes sense because at like two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm kind of useless. My brain just doesn't work. I'm tired. You're uh, in the trough. I'm in the trough, <laughs> right. It's like, oh, that's what that is. Yeah. Um, I think too, even, you know, the, respecting that in other folks too, like figuring out yeah. when's their rhythm. You yes. know, if, if, if I'm going to try to have a really hard conversation with someone, it's probably not from one to two in the afternoon. Yep. Right. It's probably yep. either, you know, three to four, you know, four o'clock it's, it's, it's first thing in the morning or, you know, mid morning or something like that. So I think even just think about staff, you know, we, we, yeah. we have a very small staff and we don't call staff meeting staff meeting, but ours are Wednesday mornings. So it's like halfway through the week and they are, um, it starts at nine 30 yeah. and it goes to about noon. Yeah. And, and there's, there always seems to be good energy yeah. in the, in the room. Yeah. And how different it would be if you move that to like 
you know, I don't know, one to, <laughs> to four o'clock, you know, yeah. that'd be a little difficult. People would be like leaving there feeling like they're insane. Like, man, I went from the, the depths of hell to the yeah. heights of heaven. Yeah. And, and how we schedule that's it's just so important. And even a, this is so fascinating to me in Pink's book, he, he referenced British researchers that tried to find the exact moment in a day where people felt at the bottom of their trough of motivation, uh, energy and happiness. And he found that the time was 2.55 PM. And what's fascinating to me- really specific. It's very specific. (laughs) I thought, oh, you know, 2 to 3 PM, but 2.55. Now, what's fascinating to me, since learning that several months ago, the times where I yawn in the afternoon, or I'm like, I need a nap so bad, or I'm dragging myself- or I'm just feel like I'm nodding off, like I cannot get the cobwebs out, and I'm at my lowest. I often look at my watch, and it is so eerie, Doug. <laughs> it is within ten minutes, either before or after two fifty-five. Sometimes I'm like, "What? Three o two p.m.? Are you kidding me? <laughs> or two fifty-one? What?" And, and try it. I'm telling you, at two fifty-five, right around there. See if when you're yawning, you know, just take a look at your watch or your phone. Look at the clock and see what time it is. It's pretty close to that 2.55 wow. marker. It's fascinating. So our circadian rhythm is really, really interesting. So I recommend the book. It's yeah. not a ministry book, yeah. but it's a fascinating book. And this is where it would differ from what Daniel Pink is doing, writing to leadership or maybe pop psychology audiences. We deal in a calling that's full, um, that is that is ripe with... Uh, interruptions. And there are sometimes, I mean, we just think like, man, you, you know, it, you know, you interrupted me. I was trying to do ministry, but you interrupted me. But to realize that ministry is the, the inter, <laughs> interruptions are the ministry. Yes. And, you know, I think of the story in Luke chapter eight, the healing of Jairus's daughter was interrupted by the woman who was subject to bleeding. But in the larger scope of things, in that context of that chapter, Jesus is interrupted from his interruption from his interruption. <laughs> And that's where the ministry happened. We call that Tuesday. (laughs) Exactly. And so as much as we can plan for some of our circadian rhythm and to align that with our schedule, we also have to realize that we can't plan so much or be frustrated when interruptions happen because they are ministry, right? A crisis doesn't come scheduled at nine o'clock on Tuesday morning. Like it just shows up on the front door. Sometimes what seems to be the worst time ever. So even though what Pink is saying, I think is fascinating and we need to be aware of it and what we can schedule, that's great. But to also to remember that ministry is not what happens uh, when we're in, like the interruptions are the ministry. That's, you know, uh, you know, youth pastors will say it isn't the scheduled event. It's when we get a flat tire on the side of the road coming back from a big trip and we have three hours, but sitting down with that student and talking to them about is a crucial breakthrough spiritually for them happened because there was a, the van broke down. Mm. And um, so that's where the ministry begins to happen. So anyway, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, first Peter 410 says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. And I think our time and not only what we do, but when we do it can be forms of grace. Mm. And so if we can steward those well by choosing to even just slide things on our schedule from the afternoon to the morning or from earlier in the week to later in the week or a big ministry launch instead of doing it, you know, in July that we do it, you know, mid-September, um, I, I wonder if that's of, of any help for our for our listeners here today.
Well, I know it's helped me today. Put words to just, yeah, the, the importance of realizing that if I can at least chunk out parts of time within my schedule, um, that's a good way to be faithful with what I've been given. And yeah. I, I think that's really helpful for us. Well, and oftentimes doing the right thing at the wrong time can become the wrong thing. Today's guest is Glenn Paw. Glenn serves as Senior Director of Content for the Institute for Bible Reading, an organization dedicated to changing the way the world reads the Bible. The focus of his 30 years of Bible ministry has been publishing, researching, speaking, and writing on the topic of reading and living the Bible well. He is the author of the wonderfully helpful book, Saving the Bible from Ourselves, and is one of the creators of Immerse, the Bible Reading Experience. He lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Enjoy this conversation with Glenn Paw. Glenn, thank you for your willingness to join us here on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast this morning. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. I love what you're doing for pastors, the reality-based, and glad to be a part. Yeah, well, Doug and I uh, have talked often about um, things like rest and Sabbath and sabbatical and soul care, but one of the things we haven't delved into in two seasons so far is the importance of Scripture. And I think sometimes as pastors, we know Scripture is important, but in this conversation, we kind of want to have a two-part conversation with you, Glenn, one on how do we personally engage with Scripture, and then how do we help our congregations engage with Scripture in ways that are healthy? and consistent in the ways in which God desired Scripture to be engaged with. And so talk about, uh, start first with your story, because I know for the last 30 years you've been involved in Bible research and writing and speaking and even writing books about the Bible. So tell us a little bit about your journey and why you care so much about Scripture. Sure. I grew up in uh, the Christian Reformed Church, actually, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, you know, a Dutch kind of one of those ethnic denominations where kind of things and the religion and the, the group identity are all intertwined. And it was, it was serious Bible culture. I mean, you know, I had catechism on Wednesday afternoons after school. This was back in the day. I'm kind of aging myself here a bit, but you know, it was serious about the Bible. So, um, but for me, it wasn't oppressive. I, I fell in love with the Bible early on. I was in young life groups in, in high school and uh, went to Denver Christian High School and then Calvin College, Calvin Seminary. And so it was Bible infused the whole way through. Um, but to me, I never kind of got tired of it. I found it endlessly fascinating. And then so when I, I naturally, after a stint with University Christian Fellowship, um, got a job with the International Bible Society, now called Biblica, and after a few years became their publisher of the NIV. So they're the copyright holders of the NIV. And I was publishing these low-cost kind of ministry Bibles. Zondervan was our, our for-profit publishing partner. They did the premium kind of commercial editions, helped fund our ministry. So I've been in Bible publishing, and I'll just quickly tell you, I uh, kind of had this breakthrough moment when George Barna came, spoke to us, said he appreciated all our work, translation so important, distribution, Bibles, getting people to have Bibles, you know, in their lives, in their hands. And then he paused and you kind of knew something was coming. And he said, but I got to tell you, there is a huge connection problem with the Bible. 
And that came early in my time there. I'd only been at International Bible Society for a couple of years, just had moved into the publishing group when I heard that. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. Bibles are everywhere, but people aren't connecting well with them. And then he gave us all his data. And I thought, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but however long I do this, I want to go after that problem. Because, you know, this was the heyday of the NIV. We were, it was like not rocket science to sell Bibles, which was good for me because, you know, you didn't have to be that smart to do this job. <laughs> the NIV. And, and, and I thought, yeah, okay, we're pumping these babies out there, but who is reading them? Like, do we have any, we just think the deal is done, like when the Bible's out the door and somebody's going to get it. And then I think we have this kind of fake supernatural thing about, you know, if somebody has a Bible, God will make sure the magic happens. And we would quote a verse out of context, right? You know, my word goes forth, it never returns to me void, right? I remember being shocked when I actually read that whole passage. I'm like, wow, that is not about selling Bibles, you know, <laughs> to somebody and having them read it. There's a whole different thing going on there. But that's the temptation, that if you sell Bibles, it's good. So I've been on this journey of, seeking better Bible engagement um, a few years ago. So I, I ended up doing that job for almost 30 years. And now I'm with a new startup with some folks uh, called the Institute for Bible Reading. And we are just laser focused on the idea, not of just having Bibles, but doing whatever we can to eliminate the barriers to help people engage well with their Bible. Because I think mm. the gift that, that the scriptures are gets missed if we if we're not receiving what God actually gave us. So you were doing everything. I mean, you you were the publisher of the best-selling translation, if not one of the best, you know, the NIV, and you're sitting there with cognitive dissonance, maybe spiritual dissonance as well, when Barna says to you, you're selling all these Bibles and they're not making a lick of difference. That had to be a pretty jarring experience for you, but it sounded like it thrusted you into saying, okay, I want to move from producing Bibles to now producing disciples who know how to engage with the Bible itself. Is that a fair statement? Right. That's exactly fair. And I, I think the thing that I realized is even in the nonprofit realm, um, you know, there was pressure. It's even worse, I think, in the for-profit Bible publishing world, but there's pressure to sell, to move units, you know, there's a financial piece to that whole thing, which, you know, that has to be the way the whole thing works. But that can, that if you're not careful, that can take over. And you can just kind of ignore, like really worrying about what happens. It's like a doctor, right? Just getting patients and dispensing medicine and never finding out like what actually happens when people mm -hmm. take this medicine. Is it doing anything in their lives, right? I had some colleagues at Zondervan who were in the same position I was, the Bible publisher, they had a consultant come in and say, if you were in the medical profession, I would sue you for malpractice because you're um. dispensing your medicine and you have no idea. You don't even care about what happens once you make that sale. Wow. And I thought, wow, I, I need to be oriented differently about my work and do whatever I can to help people engage deeply and understand what kind of book the Bible actually is so we can deal with it in realistic ways. Yeah. So Institute for Bible Reading, fantastic organization, you and Scott and Paul and others who are, who are part of that. But tell, tell our listeners, what is it that the Institute for Bible Reading does? What is it that you're actually doing to help people do the very thing you just described? Yeah. So we're, we're what we'd like to call an activist think tank. What we're doing is listening to the best voices. I mean, there's some amazing people 
in the church who spend their lives, you know, real scholars, helping us figure out what the Bible is, what it's actually saying and how it works. And, and I think a lot of that stuff just stays up in the academic realm and never makes its way down to real people in the pews. So we're, we're, we like to think of ourselves as a bridge organization that takes the best thinking of the scholarly world, that takes the Bible seriously, and translate that into resources that will help regular people without reading thick books, without becoming scholars, just be able to deal with the Bibles that they already have. And so we're, we've got a new program, a Bible reading program for churches called Immerse. It's available through our publishing partner, Tyndale. And it's all about this new movement of readers' Bibles, of, of reading books whole, um, reading for length, understanding what kind of book it is, putting the pieces together to understand the story that is the scriptures. Um, so we're getting away from this idea uh, of what Philip Yancey calls an entire culture of Bible McNuggets. People trying to live off of little Bible snacks and calling it good. And we know from the research that very, very few people um, within the church and certainly outside of the church are reading the Bible at length and understanding what they're reading. So we're, our mission is to promote reading, reading first, study second, and just reintroduce people to the real Bible without all the modern imprint that we've put on it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really interesting because I, I you, you've used this word a few times. You don't talk about reading the Bible; you talk about engaging with the Bible. And so pastors come from the Bible with sort of a, a it feels like kind of a tricky situation, right? I mean, we're you know every day in some in some it's almost like we have to rethink how we look at it in in certain terms. And so, what are some of the lies that you sense pastors are tempted to believe about the Scripture? I think it's the same lies that our our modern version of Christianity, I think, has imposed a fake model right onto the top of the Bible. And it goes back to the form of the Bible, you know, as a what N.T. Wright would call a creational monotheist, somebody who believes there's one creator God and he made the world. I think he made form and content to go together. So I think when we change the Bible into a, a textbook, a reference book, which didn't happen until the 16th century. I mean, that's late in the Bible game, actually. It's the very first time there was a chapter and verse Bible. We started to believe the lie that the Bible is meant to be used as a reference book, primarily. And this system, which was developed by people building Bible concordances and Bible commentaries who needed to look up little pieces of the Bible, which is great for that, but for actually engaging the Bible and reading the Bible as the kind of books that God inspired in the first place, it misrepresents it. But ever since that thing happened and everybody fell in love with the chapter and verse Bible, all the Bible makers, the Bible printers started spreading this around. And it's for the first time in history that regular people could have their Bible. Um, we've kind of approached the Bible as a kind of a modern, modernist, scientific dissection kind of book instead of a book of song lyrics poetry, stories, prophetic oracles. And I think pastors in particular, they just get drawn into this. I think we all just assume, I mean, I grew up around the Bible and you just assume that the form of the Bible, that's just what the Bible is. Who even thinks about it? We just get right to the other stuff. And we take a step back and say, wait, that isn't what the Bible is. The Bible is a letter. The Bible is a song. The Bible is a story. The Bible is a vision. 
It's all these other things. And if we don't ever just step back and just like feast on these big meals in the Bible, holistically, you know, literary units as they were inspired, then we're dealing with a fake Bible. And I think that's one of the things pastors can get drawn into this entire culture we've created of, of Bible pieces and just think we can just cherry pick those and, and have a decent devotional spiritual life. And I think that's, that's really the lie of the modern Bible that we're, that we're every, pastors included are drawn into thinking that's what we do with the Bible. So tease out a little bit further, this idea of a false Bible versus the real Bible. What do you mean by that when you talk about that? Yeah. C.S. Lewis has this great line. He says, any decent student or reader will, first of all, receive what an author has done. So before they begin to use a piece of literature, and this applies to the Bible as much as anything else, you first have to say, what did the author have in mind? And am I receiving what they were doing? I mean, you can critique later. You can learn, you know, study, dissect, but that's a secondary activity. First of all, is just to receive the Bible. And I think um, pastors, everybody, the first step all of us have, the obligation really we have if we're going to be virtuous readers, is to receive the Bible on its own terms. Fact is, it's, it's rooted and embedded in ancient cultures. And if we skip that step, right, we're dealing with a fake Bible. And that's what, like cherry picking verses, allows you to pretend the Bible wasn't rooted in ancient cultures. Like if I'm just picking verses out of Corinthians that I like and living off of those, if I'm not reading the whole letter with an introduction that is addressed to specific people in a specific place and certain situations, then it's an ahistorical Bible. And I'm tempted to think the Bible is useful only when I ignore the parts that don't compute with me right away, or don't seem relevant to me right away. And I'm just finding the little bits that feed me is the language that people use. So I think the real Bible is a Bible that's all these different kinds of writing. It's different literary genres. It's understanding that, it's understanding how whole books come together to tell the story that's centered in Jesus. I just think our entire modern paradigm that we've built around the Bible is failing, right? The evidence is people are not connecting with this to actually do well with the Bible. So I'm like, why do we have to remain committed to a modernist paradigm of the Bible when it's failing in the deliverables of a, of a group of people who are deeply engaged? They understand, they know what the Bible is, they know how to, to take a story that's unfinished and live into it, which I think is a new model of Bible application. It's not really applying principles or verses. It's realizing that it's a story, it's unfinished, People like Samuel Wells and N.T. Wright and Kevin Van Hooser are telling us, think of it as a drama that you're entering into. And the only thing you can do with the Bible is improvise it in our lives today. It's a new model. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. But it'd be cool if pastors could lead their congregations in new ways. Because I, you know, it's part of my job to know the evidence and the research evidence. And you can try to put a nice, you know, pretty picture on it. But the fact is, it's not a pretty picture. Um, what's happening with the Bible and real people is a pretty ugly reality, and um, we need to re-engage and rethink how we do the Bible. Mm. How about in how pastors, 
before we even get to using it, you talked about receiving it. So what are some ways, I mean, I've heard Paul Caminiti, who uh, is with you, one of your colleagues at Institute for Bible Reading, talk about how we often read the Bible out of context in little segments, and we do it in a very rushed way, and that we, we create this disconnect. How can pastors themselves, in their time trying to receive God's story, how can they practically engage in some of the things you're encouraging us in today? Yeah. Um, I'll start with a story, a quick story that I heard about Dallas Willard. And he was on the phone for the first time meeting uh, one of the pastors at a, at a well-known megachurch. And this pastor said, yeah, I got you for a few minutes. Thank you for your time. Um, what I, you know, we have a really fast-paced church here. Um, we're in the, my family life. You know, we're in the soccer practice, piano practice, driving around, coordinating schedule, busyness. So what can I do to keep my heart spiritually healthy? And there was this pause from Dallas, and he said, relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Guy said, yeah, that's good. That's good. I got that now. What else? What else can I do? Pause. Relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And that's all. He said, that's all I have to say to you is find a way to not, and I think that whole, that whole idea applies to pastors and Bibles the same way. Like relentlessly eliminate the need to always be working on the Bible, orienting your, your use of it toward a teaching, a sermon, a Bible study you're leading. You have to carve out a time. And I, I would say it's essential that you get a reader's Bible like whatever your favorite translation is, the Reader's Bibles now are available in almost every major translation. So pick your translation, get a Reader's Bible, that is a Bible without the modern apparatus imposed on it, chapters, verses, footnotes, all that stuff. Have a clean single column text, a Bible that reduces your stress level rather than raises your stress level. By the way, I know of research that actually says when people open a reference book, like a dictionary or a modernist Bible, there's an increase in their blood pressure. Wow. Oh, wow. My goodness. It's a real thing. And reading a technical manual that has all numbers inserted in it is, is, is harder for people. Like they have a different mindset than when they read a novel. Of course, that's going to be true. So the form of your Bible matters. And then relentlessly make sure, right, carve out time every week to just sit back with your Bible with no agenda read through whole books. Some of them are short enough. You can do it in a sitting easy. Some of them might take you a couple of times, but just read. Don't read with an agenda. Don't, don't stop and take notes. Don't underline. Don't do anything. Just let it wash over you um, with zero agenda, um, zero study, and just have a new kind of experience with the Bible that doesn't even have a destination in mind. You're just soaking it in on its own terms, you're, you're reading poetry as poetry. You're engaging with stories. You're just letting the Bible be what the Bible originally was in your life. And then I think that will flow over into new things with your congregation. But Glenn, you, I might miss some new uh, teaching series I might have in the future. Like, how can I read something and not write anything down or exegete it? I mean, I, I'm being facetious, of course, but this is a hard practice. It right. It is hard. And, and our, our temptation, right? I mean, we only have so much time. And I'm like, we're like, who has time for this slow? Like, who has time for the slow food movement, right? We don't have time for that. Well, who has time for the slow Bible reading movement? But I'm like, 
I'm with Dallas Willard. I'm like, look, we make choices every minute about what we're going to do and how we're going to do things. We just have to have a different kind of life with the Bible. And, I, and again, I'm, I point to the regions and say, look, it's not working. Whatever we've been doing for the last several hundred years, the decline is what is the reality of Bible engagement is declining. And it's especially stronger now with younger people. So if we don't try something different, I think we're in serious trouble with the future of the Bible in the church. I don't think it's ever going to go away, but we're going to have to rediscover it for the kind of book that it is. And the, the thing is, if you just do this, you know, and just, you know, commit to it, the fact is over time, I mean, when you're done with that, that, that episode, that, that time with the Bible like that, and you do that, on a regular basis in a rhythm, the fact is all kinds of stuff is going to come to your mind, right? And save it for when you're out of that experience. I think the experience has to have integrity, has to be authentic. But when you're done and you're doing this over time, the fact is all kinds of richness will flow over into your other ministry. But we have to protect that time relentlessly, just like I'm protecting my time in the woods and the mountains out my back door. Um, because they're right there, and I think it's 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 a refusal of a gift if I don't regularly go into the mountains that I live by, and and whether I'm a busy day or a whatever kind of day, I just have to commit to doing that. So, can you think of stories where where you've heard, um, and or maybe even personal, like a personal story of just how this is changing people's hearts and minds towards Scripture? Yeah, um, my favorite ones of late come from Christian school students. Um, we're, we've got a group of schools in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that are, you know, this is my tribe. This is the Christian Reformed Church, their big Christian school movement. I know exactly what it's like to grow up in a Christian school from kindergarten through senior and high school, and you're getting Bible at school, you're getting Bible at church, and you've about had it with Bible. It's up to here. But now some of the schools in high school in particular have been doing, like, for instance, a New Testament survey class. But they realized that they've been talking about the Bible, but not actually having kids just read the Bible. So they're finishing a New Testament survey class and they haven't read the New Testament, mm. which is kind of crazy if you think about it. So they said, let's try Immerse. Let's take Immerse. And instead of doing an academic class, let's have book clubs, which is what this model is about. Instead of Bible studies, it's book clubs. So they're reading whole books. Sometimes they read aloud in class. Sometimes they read as homework. They're reading 10 to 12 pages a day. And then they're coming together and just having a book club. Instead of intense academic study and text and dissection, it's a book club. It's open-ended questions. And these Christian school kids who have been inoculated against the Bible by having so much of it in every realm of their life are falling in love with the Bible again. They're saying, I never knew the Bible was this kind of book. I never knew you could talk about it this openly with people. If you have open-ended book club discussions rather than Bible studies. And I never knew that this is what it felt like to actually understand the Bible on its own terms. So I'm reading this letter from Paul to a church and I finally feel like I understand what was going on with those people in that church, what their problems were, right? How frustrated Paul was with their problems and how this was real life for the first time for me, instead of a bunch of doctrine and teachings and stuff I'm supposed to know. So to me, if, if that audience can be 
can re-engage and rediscover the real Bible, I'm like, it can happen anywhere. So let's let's shift here. You know, personal. This is how I can receive it. Do it in, you know, reader's Bible as a pastor. How does this impact things like Bible studies, preaching, even my, you know, teaching, preaching preparation? How can I then turn this to help help people in my congregation actually get the gist of exactly what you're talking about? Yeah, I think um, I think the journey to Bible engagement is a series of steps along the way, and I think one is we just have to break the stranglehold of the modernist Bible. And I, I think it'd be cool if people realized, look, for me to be serious about the Bible, uh, you know, I don't have to just study the modernist Bible, you know, with the imprint on it. I can get a reader's Bible and I can sit back and enjoy the Bible. And I'm hearing my pastor talk about do that so he can model that new behavior. I think in preaching and teaching the Bible, you know, there's this thing, you know, we even have a phrase like, well, yeah, you, you vaguely have this idea. It's in the Bible, but I need chapter and verse right? Chapter and verse. If it's real, you, you know the address. And I think we got we to gotta throw that away. Like, what if we heard people talk about passages in the Bible and just reference them by context and content? Mm. So we talk about the story of the Samaritan woman in John's gospel. And instead of saying John 4, right, what do we say after Jesus, you know, has this intense experience in the temple, and then he has this one-on-one with Nicodemus, then he's traveling again, and we just reference it by the where it is in the flow of the book. Or wow, that's fascinating. We're that talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're like, well, yeah, it's the Sermon on the Mount, but it's it's like Jesus. He's just inaugurated his new ministry. He's had it out with with Satan in the wilderness, and he's he's starting to travel. Right in chapter four, he's just starting to travel, and then we say he launches his ministry with this inauguration sermon, right laying out his program for his administration as the one who's bringing the kingdom to earth. And we learn to reference the Bible in natural ways so that people stop thinking that it has to always be talked about with chapter and verse. And I think then they'll start learning the flow of whole books, not just street addresses for, for verses. And I think it's a new, that, that little thing will change the way people think about the Bible. So is in some senses, it's st- instead of saying, Oh, it's at, you know, 411 Main Street, it's saying go through town, and then once you pass Broad Street, there's the school on the left, go a little bit past that, and then take a right. Is that kind of what you're inferring? Exactly. It's a natural way of talking about the Bible, right? Without an artificial system that has been placed over it, and is numeric, and is is cold, actually. And And actually, I have more respect for somebody who knows a book well enough to be able to describe the town, right? Mm. If you can describe the town, I know you know that town. Mm, right i know you know the book if you can tell me where it is in the flow of the book and why it is where it is and then let's talk about the content right so that change you know just if they if pastors can model new engagement practices i think congregations will start to pick up on that even if it's subtle like you don't have to be over the top with it. it can be a subtle thing um but they'll they'll start to learn like hey i can i can talk about the real bible not the Bible of the 16th century onward Bible. 
Boy, but that, well, all right. So getting back to the whole, you know, the town, instead of giving someone the physical address, but the town, I feel like even, even if I'm giving that to someone like, Hey, here's how to get there. It makes me stop. I I have to slow down and pay attention again. It's almost like it, you know, I'm not just waiting for my GPS to tell me when to, you know, turn or whatever, but I'm actually paying attention to the surroundings in a much deeper way. It's funny. We, uh, we go up to Canada every year. We have friends of ours, uh, who are Canadian and um, our GPS doesn't work there because we're too cheap to buy the the data plan. And so, so the lady has written us like these directions and they're hilarious because it's like, when you see the big red barn by that turn, make a left. And it's funny because I can drive that at this point in time, we've traveling quite a few years up there, but it's like, I actually know that landscape super well, but I can drive to a place super close by here. And I couldn't, I, I could tell you like, yeah, take this road, this road. And then it's like over on the left, but it's not as detailed as what it is when someone writes out that, that thing. Uh, sorry. I'm like nerding out right now. This is and the parallel huge. Is, like biblical books are like that landscape. I mean, mm. they were crafted by authors and there are, there are meta messages, not just small messages. And I think we've been taught with the modernist Bible to go for small messages, like this verse or this story, or even this small section. And we forget that, that authors and editors were crafting this as an old, because they were experienced holistically by audiences. I mean, when a, when a letter got sent to a church, someone stood up and read that letter. They didn't read a few verses and say, come back next week and we'll read the next ones, right? So it was experienced holistically. And so they were crafted. And so we miss the messages of whole books and how content fits together holistically and why this story is here and why this section is up front um, because we don't pay attention to the big flow. And so I think um, it's part of the Bible's message that we've been missing because we don't experience the Bible holistically for the most part. That's really good. And that reminds me, uh, probably about 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I were at, at a church and there was a, we were starting the book of Philippians and the pastor stood up very dramatically and said, someone just handed me an, an, an envelope and a letter and I'm going to read the letter. We thought, that's kind of weird. And it was the entire book of Philippians, but in the message. And the entire message for the day was he just read the message translation of Philippians. And I, to this day, can still remember thinking how brilliant that was. Why don't we always do series like this? Why don't we start every book series by just reading in one sitting aloud the entire book? Now, it'd be harder for some of the larger books, but it was absolutely fantastic. And that has always stuck with me, though that was 20 years ago. Um, so if entire congregate, if pastors get this in their personal lives, they receive it, they slow down, they eliminate hurry, they begin to help their congregation see the whole town extrapolate out a, a little bit, whether it's a few months or a few years or even, even a decade or two. What implications would that have on congregations when the congregation fully gets the Bible as it's intended to be? What is the shade and the shape and the scope of what a congregation could look like if that were to occur? Yeah, I'll use a, an analogy. You know, I talked about hiking in the mountains right out my back door. Um, when I moved up here, like I didn't really know the system of trails. I didn't know the mountains very well yet. And I was a little tenuous and, you know, asking people when I'd go by them, like, where does this go? Or what happens if I go up that valley? Um, but even in the, the, you know, nine months that I've been here, um, I know my immediate vicinity, like really well. So now I'm telling people, Oh, yeah, if you take this ridge and follow it and climb, you know, you'll get this amazing view of the whole 
Western, you know, this whole deal. And, and it just becomes a familiar place, but a place you feel comfortable in. And you like, you can talk about it with ease and you know how to travel it. So I think if we, if we start receiving the Bible and, and living in it this new holistic way, it becomes like that kind of a landscape. And I think, you know, if we buy into this drama, unfinished story, improvisation idea of the Bible, like, look, the whole book of Corinthians, you know, it was written to somebody in a particular situation, and we have to read it first as that word to them. And if, if you're trying to skip that step and just say, what is God saying to me as my first thing I'm looking for in the Bible? That's when we go wayward. That's when we go off the rails. So if we'll learn to, to, like, we get to know it, we're like, wow, Paul had issues with Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a strange place, right? They had a lot of stuff going on, right? And he's, he's like, I wish I could be there all the time to help you guys, but I got other things to do. So I'm writing you these harsh letters. But we, we, get to, we get the inside feel of that. And then we start putting all of that together. I think then, once we really know the Bible, like at length, and what it was doing then, that's when in our new act, our latest act, our open-ended act of the biblical story that we're in, we'll know better how to improvise the story. The fact is, you can't just lift stuff directly from even New Testament letters, you know, much less the older part of the Bible. You know, we're, we're wrong to think we can just lift it all and it speaks directly to us. That's why I love N.T. Wright's, you know, Shakespearean drama image, which you probably have heard about, um, you know, a new Shakespearean play is found, but it's missing the last act. So what are you going to do? Are you going to stage it? Are you going to perform it? So you get Shakespearean actors, they immerse themselves in the first four acts, really get to know it, and then you put them on the stage and you let them work out the ending for themselves. It's exactly where we are with the Bible. We have to live that same trajectory, the story of renewal in Jesus, um, the, the things we learn from the earlier acts, which are the Bible, that gives us guidelines for how to live today without telling us robotically exactly what to do in every situation. People want the Bible to be this kind of how-to book, which is the way it's often described, when actually it's the earlier acts of a drama, and we're living in the later acts, and the script for us has not yet been written. We can't look up our lines in the Bible. We can see what God was doing then, we get the, we get the trajectory, and we live into it. And that, that is a whole new, I mean, that, that's a big discussion in itself. What does it mean to improvise the Bible? Mm. Wow, that so okay. So you know, you talk about. Uh, I mean, I've heard the importance of you know um, book studies or looking at the scripture in terms of community together as a book study. Um, the the reader's Bible, um, the idea of slowing down and just reading it on its own terms. Are there any other like specific things that you can think through that would be like, yeah, I also want to throw this and this and this in there too, or <laughs> I'm sure there's a, as a ton, but maybe one or two other pieces that are just really good to keep in mind as we are re-engage as we're engaging the scripture, immersing ourselves in it. Yeah. I think right at, right there at the heart of this holistic vision of the Bible, of rediscovering that, is kind of a recognition of the gift of literary genre. It really is a gift. I mean it's cool that the Bible is made up of all these different kinds of writing. I mean that's like real life, right? I mean it's like you and 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 when you get a literary Bible rather than a modernistic you know, piecemeal Bible, um, you're seeing the books as the literature that they were inspired to be, right? And so it gives us clues 
for how to receive a book when we realize what kind of writing it is, right? Hebrew parallelism in poetry, that, that's a, if you don't see that, and by the way, a two-column Bible, right? It's, it's a nuclear bomb for, for biblical poetry because it blows up <laughs> the line. You, you, the line isn't long enough to get the whole Hebrew line across, so you have to indent it. But then when you get to the second line, you have to do a different level of indent. And so what you get is a whole page full of crazy indentations and you can't make heads or tails out of it. So if you get a single column Bible where you can see the Hebrew poetry, then you know how those lines work together. And they were made. They were written to work together. Sometimes they talk back to each other. Sometimes uh. they reinforce each other. I mean, they're doing different things. But if we're not seeing it, right, then we're not really receiving the Bible that it was inspired to be. And poetry is at the heart of it when you're in poetic sections. How, how Hebrew stories work, right? Why letters are so powerful as instruction. Right? Why apocalyptic visions? What, how does that work? Right? If we're not doing those, like first step, what kind of writing is this? That's also when we go off the rails um, thinking we're understanding the Bible because we're not understanding how different kinds of literature work. Things mm -hmm. we intuitively know in our world when we're picking up different kinds of writing. So that was the one other thing I would add is just be intentional about, you know, if pastors can tell congregations, this is this kind of writing. I, I, I have to tell you, I've heard a lot of sermons, right? I'm 61 years old, and I rarely, if ever, hear a reference to what kind of writing is this. Wow, that's, that's a, a great, great point. point. We don't talk wow. about it, but it's it's essential for good Bible reading and understanding. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, Glenn, I wish you would be passionate about what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, me, me too, me too. <laughs> I mean, Doug and I are seeing your eyes light up and your hands move around. I wish our, our listeners could actually see you. You are passionate about this, which you should be, and you are, and we should be passionate about it, which is, which is fantastic. Final question here. Um, I think Doug and I know what you mean by improvising and improvisation of Scripture. But just for some of our readers that may be scratching their head going, what do you mean improvising Scripture? I don't understand, Glenn. Well, could you unpack that for just a moment or two? What does that mean? Some people, when you hear improvisation, you think, oh, that means like there's no guardrails. You're just making up whatever you want to make up. There's like, how can the Bible be a book that you improvise? That doesn't sound right, you know? But if you think about comedy improvisation or musical improvisation, right? The things that have gone before make all the difference, right? That's why the way we should talk about improvising the story, which means living it out, living the same story out in our own time without being told exactly what to do. So someone who's doing musical improvisation, they're not playing notes off the page, but they're listening very carefully to everything that's gone before that sets the stage for what they're going to do, right? The key, the, the pace, the tone, everything is set by what has happened before. And then they are appropriately adding their piece in an improvisational way, in a way that is not scripted, but you can, there's, there's good improvisation and there's bad improvisation, whether it's in keeping with what's gone before, mm, right? It's yeah. an appropriate trajectory of what's gone before. And it's, cre it's both, Kevin Van Hooser has this great line, it's creative fidelity. Mm. What a great line. Wow. There's creativity, but there's also fidelity. There, you have to be faithful to the story that has gone before. And if you're, you know, you can go off from that story and it's not really the same story. Or you can be faithful to it, 
but creative within that fidelity. And I think that's, that's the tension we're looking for. So what we want to do is, um, I think people, you know, if we're dealing with the fake Bible that we just pull verses from, it's easy to say, that's a direct word to me. I don't have to think about the original audience. And that's how I know what the Bible wants me to do. But then you're ignoring huge swaths of the Bible because they don't fit mm -hmm. that model. Mm -hmm. If you want to live out the whole Bible, I think this improvisational model of an unfinished story that we are now the players in the gospel drama at the end of the story, that's a beautiful thing. And it kind of brings life and creativity back to our understanding of living the Bible in the world today, rather than desperately looking for verses, you know, and trying to find the right ones. Yeah, that's terrific. A, a friend of mine reminds me of a friend in college who played trumpet in the jazz band. And I love listening to music, but I don't know how to play an instrument. And he was improvising at an event that I went to. And I said, um, how do you know when you've gone too far? How do you know when you're just kind of overpowering it? And does you know, that's a lot of control given up by the by by your conductor. And and he said, No, no, no. He said, I always submit to the music. The music never submits to me. And that line has always stuck with me because he said the beat, he said, I can go off it, but I must always come back to the beat. I, I can go away from it, but I must always come back, but I submit to the to the music. The music does not submit to me. And and that, to me, was really helpful in understanding not only improvisation of music, but also of this concept you're talking about with Scripture. Yeah. And, uh, obedience. I think obedience to Scripture, we think of it as just straightforward doing whatever it says. Mm. Please tell me we're not going to do that. We cannot just do everything it says, right? Those words were not written directly to us. Mm -hmm. Some of them, yes. A lot of them, no. But obedience to Scripture, I think, is that kind of an obedience. It's improvisational obedience, um, you know, so that it, it fits the image, the, the, the vision of the gospel that we see, you know, especially, the, you know, the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is presented in the story as better than the prophets, as the thing that the whole story has been pointing toward and we need to live a life that is authentic and obedient to the vision of Christ that we get in the Bible, not just choosing the bits that seem to make sense and ignoring the rest. Mm. Wow. Well, Glenn, this has been a fantastic conversation. Doug and I have been furiously taking notes here. This has been uh, wonderful, and I'm sure our, our listeners are going to be enjoying this as well. Thanks for shedding light, on, not just on what this means for us when we're preaching or teaching or prepping, but for our own journeys too. And for us to be healthy as people who listen to God, we better be listening to the Word that God gives to us. So thanks for helping expand our understanding of this and reminding us of what's so important. It's been great to have you on been great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Hmm. Yeah. What an important topic for us to address here on the, on the MMP for Glenn talking about... Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, JR. Good morning, Doug. Always good to see you. Definitely good to see you too, man. So yeah, we, uh, we've been chatting recently about um, just the way in which kind of our, our times, our rhythms, how things kind of work in, in these, yeah, just interesting ways. And you had some really cool thoughts on what that's all about. 
Yeah, well, I, I recently read a book by Daniel Pink. I'm a huge Daniel Pink fan. He's written several great books, but his most recent one that came out about a year ago, I think, uh, is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And he basically said, we know the adage, timing is everything. But he said, why don't we then pay much attention to that fact that timing is everything? And so he looked at research and he actually addressed some really fascinating questions like, why, um, why should we avoid going to the hospital in the afternoon? Or why do regularly scheduled breaks significantly increase student scores in school? Or why, this one freaked me out. Why do prison boards grant parole for more inmates in the morning than in the afternoon? And so he basically looked at the research and what he found was that everybody has a circadian rhythm, this sort of natural pattern of which we our energy, motivation, and happiness occurs. And he said, we all have a peak where we rise throughout the day, and then we all have a trough where we kind of bottom out on our energy and motivation and happiness. And then we rise again, what he calls a rebound. And then, um, and so he basically says, we all peak in terms of our energy, motivation, and happiness morning to right before lunch. So when you hit mid morning and late and late morning, we kind of, we can feel that in our, in our gut, right? We just know like that's when we're happiest and we're more motivated during that time. And then we hit lunch and we kind of go down into this trough, like on a graph, uh, you see, it looks like a trough and, uh, and, and that's sort of the post lunch coma that sets in. <laughs> and then, and then we rebound and our energy from about four to 6 PM rises again in that. And then after 6 PM, it kind of tapers off and slides all the way until we slide into bed at night. And uh, so he said, why don't we pay more attention to our circadian rhythm, this rhythm that's built into us. And so he basically says, think about how you schedule your day. So he's a business writer and a leadership writer. So he's trying to get us to think, how do we be more productive and more efficient and maximize our potential? And those are all good things. But I had a question that, that a few months ago hit me. Is there anything for us to learn about Pink's writing as it relates to ministry? Mm. And so I began to just do these little experiments in my own life and realize, okay, so if most of my energy, motivation, excitement, focus, happiness happens morning to right before lunch, what if that's when I put my deepest, most creative work, that's when I needed to kind of dig into that or a hard conversation or a hard project. I really needed to delve into that time. Um, maybe a difficult meeting with someone hitting them on their circadian rhythm when they're happiest is maybe better in the morning than in the afternoon. Then when I hit my trough, I mean, he recommends that's when we should be doing uh, things that don't take as much mental energy. So checking and responding to email, maybe some logistical or administrative details that we just need to do, but don't require a lot of us while we're in that trough. And then rising again, you know, I find it interesting in the trough, you know, Latin American countries and, and places like Spain have a siesta in the afternoon. They literally shut down the business and go home and have a nap during the... Well, when do they do it? Right during the trough. Makes a lot of sense. And then thinking, well, when, when do bars... What do bars call 4 to 6 p.m.? They call it happy hour, which is interesting. That's our rebound. So we do have these rhythms. And so if timing is everything, it made me wonder... Uh, if timing is everything, does that matter in ministry? And so I've just been thinking through when I schedule things and how I schedule things. 
I even think through there's a circadian rhythm even to the week of a, of a pastor, right? Monday morning pastor, we call it this because we know the circadian rhythm of a pastor <laughs> right. is down on Monday. It right. is our trough of troughs. <laughs> and I think back to when we interviewed Tara Beth Leach, and she talked about Mondays being really difficult, and she tried to come in and work at it really hard on Mondays, and it wasn't working. So she reworked it and moved some other tasks to later in the week when she did things mattered in ministry. She was less irritable. She was more on top of it. She was less um, insecure or more secure, I should say, to what God had had for her mm. and who she was. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that and not just our daily rhythms of how we schedule things, teaching prep, preaching prep. Uh, when I would do premarital counseling and it was the first thing in the morning, it would wipe me out. <laughs> now, Megan would say, hey, you did a really good job in that premarital counseling or counseling situation. Um, but it, my rest of my day, I would be flat and wiped, just totally wiped emotionally for the rest of the day. So I realized that I had to put it toward the end of the day because then I had sort of the evening to recover. Um, but I just couldn't do it at the beginning because they might've been helped, but I was, it just ruined my day. Mm. And so I had to change that schedule. Um, again, my teaching, preaching prep is mostly done in the mornings. Um, even thinking about my week, but I think there's a circadian seasonal rhythm when it comes to the church. You know, we've talked about this before, right? January, everyone's excited. New year, new possibilities. We cast vision at churches. We launch new small groups, right? And then you kind of hit Easter and it goes down a little bit, but up until May and then June, July, it kind of troughs out in terms of momentum, giving, presence, uh, attendance, right? Um, and then kind of comes back up again for a rebound in September and October. School's back in session. We cast vision again. We launch more small groups. And so we kind of use a little bit of the school rhythms as our own cultural and seasonal circadian rhythm in the church. And uh, and so anyway, it's been fascinating. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Have you thought through that, Doug, before? Well, I, I probably haven't. I have not put words to it like you just have. And I think it it totally makes sense. I think, well, here's a real great, real simple example. Uh, I, I ref hockey games and I play hockey and that's always, it's a late night. And I basically ref one night a week, it's Monday nights and I'm home by like 1130. And I used to try to cram meetings in at like seven o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. And I just realized I can't, there's no way I can keep myself up with that rhythm. I'm just, I'm useless. I think too, like even realizing that space of, yeah, that totally makes sense because at like two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm kind of useless. My brain just doesn't work. I'm tired. You're uh, in the trough. I'm in the trough, <laughs> right. It's like, oh, that's what that is. Yeah. Um, I think too, even, you know, the, respecting that in other folks too, like figuring out yeah. when's their rhythm. You yes. know, if 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 I'm going to try to have a really hard conversation with someone, it's probably not from one to two in the afternoon, yep. right? It's probably yep. either, you know, three to four, you know, four o'clock it's, it's, it's first thing in the morning or, you know, mid morning or something like that. So I think even just think about staff, you know, we, we, yeah. we have a very small staff and we don't call staff meeting staff meeting, but ours are Wednesday mornings. So it's like halfway through the week and they are, um, it starts at nine 30 yeah. and it goes to about noon. Yeah. And, and there's, there always seems to be good energy yeah. in the, in the room. Yeah. And how different it would be if you move that to like you know, I don't know, one to, <laughs> to four o'clock, you know, yeah. that'd be a little difficult. People would be like leaving there feeling like they're insane. Like, man, I went from the, the depths of hell to the yeah. heights of heaven. 
Yeah, and and how we schedule that's just so important. And even a this is so fascinating to me. In Pink's book, he he referenced British researchers that tried to find the exact moment in a day where people felt at the bottom of their trough of motivation, uh, energy, and happiness. And he found that the time was two fifty five p.m. Wow. And what's fascinating that's to really me specific. is very specific. <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, two to three p.m. But yeah. two fifty five now. What's fascinating to me, since learning that several months ago, the times where I yawn in the afternoon, or I'm like, I need a nap so bad, or I'm dragging myself, or I am just feel like I'm nodding off, like I cannot get the cobwebs out, and I'm at my lowest, I often look at my watch, and it is so eerie, Doug. <laughs> it is within 10 minutes, either before or after 2.55. Sometimes I'm like, what? 3.02 p.m.? Are you kidding me? <laughs> or 2.51? What? And, and try it. I'm telling you, at 2.55, right around there, see if when you're yawning, you know, just take a look at your watch or your phone, Look at the clock and see what time it is. It's pretty close to that 255 wow. marker. It's fascinating. So our circadian rhythm is really, really interesting. So I recommend the book. It's yeah. not a ministry book, yeah. but it's a fascinating book. And this is where it would differ from what Daniel Pink is doing, writing to leadership or maybe pop psychology audiences. We deal in a calling that's full, um, that is that is ripe with... Uh, interruptions. And there are sometimes, I mean, we just think like, man, you, you know, it, you know, you interrupted me. I was trying to do ministry, but you interrupted me. But to realize that ministry is the, <laughs> inter, mi, interruptions are the ministry. Yes. And, you know, I think of the story in Luke chapter eight, the healing of Jairus's daughter was interrupted by the woman who was subject to bleeding. But in the larger scope of things, in that context of that chapter, Jesus is interrupted from his interruption from his interruption. <laughs> And that's where the ministry happened. We call that Tuesday. <laughs> exactly. And so as much as we can plan for some of our circadian rhythm and to align that with our schedule, we also have to realize that we can't plan so much or be frustrated when interruptions happen because they are ministry, right? A crisis doesn't come scheduled at nine o'clock on Tuesday morning. Like it just shows up on the front door. Sometimes what seems to be the worst time ever. So even though what Pink is saying, I think is fascinating and we need to be aware of it and what we can schedule, that's great. But to also to remember that ministry is not what happens uh, when we're in, like the interruptions are the ministry. That's, you know, uh, you know, youth pastors will say it isn't the scheduled event. It's when we get a flat tire on the side of the road coming back from a big trip and we have three hours, but sitting down with that student and talking to them about is a crucial breakthrough spiritually for them happened because there was a, the van broke down. Mm. And um, so that's where the ministry begins to happen. So anyway, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, first Peter 4.10 says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. And I think our time and not only what we do, but when we do it can be forms of grace. Mm. And so if we can steward those well, by choosing to even just slide things in our schedule from the afternoon to the morning or from earlier in the week to later in the week or a big ministry launch instead of doing it, you know, in July that we do it, you know, mid-September. Mm. Um, I, I, I wonder if that's of, of any help for our, for our listeners here today. Well, I know it's helped me today. Put words to just, yeah, the, the importance of realizing that if I can at least chunk out parts of time within my schedule, 
um, that's a good way to be faithful with what I've been given. And yeah. I, I think that's really helpful for us. Well, and oftentimes doing the right thing at the wrong time can become the wrong thing. Today's guest is Glenn Paw. Glenn serves as Senior Director of Content for the Institute for Bible Reading, an organization dedicated to changing the way the world reads the Bible. The focus of his 30 years of Bible ministry has been publishing, researching, speaking, and writing on the topic of reading and living the Bible well. He is the author of the wonderfully helpful book, Saving the Bible from Ourselves, and is one of the creators of Immerse, the Bible Reading Experience. He lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Enjoy this conversation with Glenn Paw. Glenn, thank you for your willingness to join us here on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast this morning. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. I love what you're doing for pastors, the reality-based, and glad to be a part. Yeah, well, Doug and I uh, have talked often about um, things like rest and Sabbath and sabbatical and soul care, but one of the things we haven't delved into in two seasons so far is the importance of Scripture. And I think sometimes as pastors, we know Scripture is important, but in this conversation, we kind of want to have a two-part conversation with you, Glenn, one on how do we personally engage with Scripture? And then how do we help our congregations engage with Scripture in ways that are healthy and consistent in the ways in which God desired Scripture to be engaged with? And so talk about, start first with your story, because I know for the last 30 years you've been involved in Bible research and writing and speaking and even writing books about the Bible. So tell us a little bit about your journey and why you care so much about Scripture. Sure. I grew up in uh, the Christian Reformed Church, actually, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, you know, a Dutch, kind of one of those ethnic denominations where kind of things and the religion and the, the group identity are all intertwined. And it was, it was serious Bible culture. I mean, you know, I had catechism on Wednesday afternoons after school. This was back in the day. I'm kind of aging myself here a bit. But, you know, it was serious about the Bible. So, um, but for me, it wasn't oppressive. I, I fell in love with the Bible early on. I was in young life groups in, in high school and uh, went to Denver Christian High School and then Calvin College, Calvin Seminary. And so it was Bible infused the whole way through. Um, but to me, I never kind of got tired of it. I found it endlessly fascinating. And then so when I, I naturally, after a stint with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, um, got a job with the International Bible Society, now called Biblica, and after a few years became their publisher of the NIV. So they're the copyright holders of the NIV, and I was publishing these low-cost kind of ministry Bibles. Zondervan was our, our for-profit publishing partner. They did the premium kind of commercial editions, helped fund our ministry. So I've been in Bible publishing, and I'll just quickly tell you, uh, I kind of had this breakthrough moment when George Barna came, spoke to us, said he appreciated all our work, translation so important, distribution, Bibles, getting people to have Bibles, you know, in their lives, in their hands. And then he paused and you kind of knew something was coming. And he said, but I got to tell you, there is a huge connection problem with the Bible. And that came early in my time there. I'd only been at International Bible Society for a couple of years, just had moved into the publishing group when I heard that. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. Bibles are everywhere. 
but people aren't connecting well with them. And then he gave us all his data. And I thought, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but however long I do this, I want to go after that problem. Because, you know, this was the heyday of the NIV. We were, it was like not rocket science to sell Bibles, which was good for me because, you know, you didn't have to be that smart to do this job. <laughs> the NIV. And, and, and I thought, yeah, okay, we're pumping these babies out there, but who is reading them? Like, do we have any, we just think the deal is done, like when the Bible's out the door and somebody's going to get it. And then I think we have this kind of fake supernatural thing about, you know, if somebody has a Bible, God will make sure the magic happens. And we would quote a verse out of context, right? You know, my word goes forth, it never returns to me void, right? I remember being shocked when I actually read that whole passage. I'm like, wow, that is not about selling Bibles, you know, <laughs> to somebody and having them read it. There's a whole different thing going on there. But that's the temptation, that if you sell Bibles, it's good. So I've been on this journey of, seeking better Bible engagement um, a few years ago. So I, I ended up doing that job for almost 30 years. And now I'm with a new startup with some folks uh, called the Institute for Bible Reading. And we are just laser focused on the idea, not of just having Bibles, but doing whatever we can to eliminate the barriers to help people engage well with their Bible. Because I think mm. the gift that, that the scriptures are gets missed if, we, if we're not receiving what God actually gave us. So you were doing everything. I mean, you you were the publisher of the best-selling translation, if not one of the best, you know, the NIV, and you're sitting there with cognitive dissonance, maybe spiritual dissonance as well, when Barna says to you, you're selling all these Bibles and they're not making a lick of difference. That had to be a pretty jarring experience for you, but it sounded like it thrusted you into saying, okay, I want to move from producing Bibles to now producing disciples who know how to engage with the Bible itself. Is that a fair statement? Right. That's exactly fair. And I, I think the thing that I realized is even in the nonprofit realm, um, you know, there was pressure. It's even worse, I think, in the for-profit Bible publishing world, but there's pressure to sell, to move units, you know, there's a financial piece to that whole thing, which, you know, that has to be the way the whole thing works. But that can, that if you're not careful, that can take over. And you can just kind of ignore, like really worrying about what happens. It's like a doctor, right? Just getting patients and dispensing medicine and never finding out like what actually happens when people mm -hmm. take this medicine. Is it doing anything in their lives, right? I had some colleagues at Zondervan who were in the same position I was, the Bible publisher. They had a consultant come in and say, if you were in the medical profession, I would sue you for malpractice because wow. you're dispensing your medicine and you have no idea. You don't even care about what happens once you make that sale. Wow. And I thought, wow, I, I need to be oriented differently about my work and do whatever I can to help people engage deeply and understand what kind of book the Bible actually is so we can deal with it in realistic ways. Yeah. So Institute for Bible Reading, fantastic organization, uh, you and Scott and Paul and others who are, who are part of that. But tell, tell our listeners, what is it that the Institute for Bible Reading does? What is it that you're actually doing to help people do the very thing you just described? Yeah. So we're, we're what we'd like to call an activist think tank. What we're doing is listening to the best voices. I mean, there's some amazing people in the church who spend their lives, you know, real scholars, helping us figure out what the Bible is, what it's actually saying and how it works. And, and I think a lot of that stuff just stays up in the academic realm and never makes its way down to real people. 
in the pews. So we're, we're, we like to think of ourselves as a bridge organization that takes the best thinking of the scholarly world, that takes the Bible seriously, and translate that into resources that will help regular people without reading thick books, without becoming scholars, just be able to deal with the Bibles that they already have. And so we're, we've got a new program, a Bible reading program for churches called Immerse. It's available through our publishing partner, Tyndale. And it's all about this new movement of readers' Bibles, of, of reading books whole, um, reading for length, understanding what kind of book it is, putting the pieces together to understand the story that is the scriptures. Um, so we're getting away from this idea uh, of what Philip Yancey calls an entire culture of Bible McNuggets. People trying to live off of little Bible snacks and calling it good. And we know from the research that very, very few people um, within the church and certainly outside of the church are reading the Bible at length and understanding what they're reading. So we're, our mission is to promote reading, reading first, study second, and just reintroduce people to the real Bible without all the modern imprint that we've put on it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really interesting because I, I you, you've used this word a few times. You don't talk about reading the Bible; you talk about engaging with the Bible. And so pastors come from the Bible with sort of a, a it feels like kind of a tricky situation, right? I mean, we're you know every day in some in some it's almost like we have to rethink how we look at it in in certain terms. And so, what are some of the lies that you sense pastors are tempted to believe about the Scripture? I think it's the same lies that our our modern version of Christianity, I think, has imposed a fake model right onto the top of the Bible. And it goes back to the form of the Bible, you know, as a what N.T. Wright would call a creational monotheist, somebody who believes there's one creator God and he made the world. I think he made form and content to go together. So I think when we change the Bible into a, a textbook, a reference book, which didn't happen until the 16th century. I mean, that's late in the Bible game, actually. It's the very first time there was a chapter and verse Bible. We started to believe the lie that the Bible is meant to be used as a reference book, primarily. And this system, which was developed by people building Bible concordances and Bible commentaries who needed to look up little pieces of the Bible, which is great for that, but for actually engaging the Bible and reading the Bible as the kind of books that God inspired in the first place, it misrepresents it. But ever since that thing happened and everybody fell in love with the chapter and verse Bible, all the Bible makers, the Bible printers started spreading this around. And it's for the first time in history that regular people could have their Bible. Um, we've kind of approached the Bible as a kind of a modern, modernist, scientific dissection kind of book instead of a book of song lyrics, poetry, stories, prophetic oracles. And I think pastors in particular, they just get drawn into this. I think we all just assume, I mean, I grew up around the Bible and you just assume that the form of the Bible, that's just what the Bible is. Who even thinks about it? We just get right to the other stuff. And we take a step back and say, wait, that isn't what the Bible is. The Bible is a letter. The Bible is a song. The Bible is a story. The Bible is a vision. It's all these other things. And if we don't ever just step back and just like feast on these big meals in the Bible, holistically, you know, literary units as they were inspired, then we're dealing with a fake Bible. And I think that's one of the things 
pastors can get drawn into this entire culture we've created of, of Bible pieces and just think we can just cherry pick those and, and have a decent devotional, spiritual life. And I think that's, that's really the lie of the modern Bible, that we're, that we're every, pastors included are drawn into thinking that's what we do with the Bible. So tease out a little bit further this idea of a false Bible versus the real Bible. What do you mean by that when you talk about that? Yeah, C.S. Lewis has this great line. He says, any decent student or reader will, first of all, receive what an author has done. So before they begin to use a piece of literature, and this applies to the Bible as much as anything else, you first have to say, what did the author have in mind, and am I receiving what they were doing? I mean, you can critique later. You can learn, you know, study, dissect, but that's a secondary activity. First of all, is just to receive the Bible. And I think um, pastors, everybody, the first step all of us have, the obligation really we have if we're going to be virtuous readers, is to receive the Bible on its own terms. Fact is, it's, it's rooted and embedded in ancient cultures. And if we skip that step, right, we're dealing with a fake Bible. And that's what like cherry-picking verses allows you to pretend the Bible wasn't rooted in ancient cultures. Like if I'm just picking verses out of Corinthians that I like and living off of those, if I'm not reading the whole letter with an introduction that is addressed to specific people in a specific place and certain situations, then it's an ahistorical Bible. And I'm tempted to think the Bible is useful only when I ignore the parts that don't compute with me right away or don't seem relevant to me right away. And I'm just finding the little bits that Feed me is the language that people use. So I think the real Bible is a Bible that's all these different kinds of writing. It's different literary genres. It's understanding that. It's understanding how whole books come together to tell the story that's centered in Jesus. I just think our entire modern paradigm that we've built around the Bible is failing, right? The evidence is people are not connecting with this to actually do well with the Bible. So I'm like, why do we have to remain committed to a modernist paradigm of the Bible when it's failing in the deliverables of a, of a group of people who are deeply engaged? They understand, they know what the Bible is, they know how to, to take a story that's unfinished and live into it, which I think is a new model of Bible application. It's not really applying principles or verses. It's realizing that it's a story, it's unfinished, People like Samuel Wells and N.T. Wright and Kevin Van Hooser are telling us, think of it as a drama that you're entering into. And the only thing you can do with the Bible is improvise it in our lives today. It's a new model. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. But it'd be cool if pastors could lead their congregations in new ways. Because, I, you know, it's part of my job to know the evidence and the research evidence. And you can try to put a nice, you know, pretty picture on it. But the fact is, it's not a pretty picture. Um, what's happening with the Bible and real people is a pretty ugly reality, and um, we need to re-engage and rethink how we do the Bible. Mm. How about in how pastors, before we even get to using it, you talked about receiving it. So what are some ways, I mean, I've heard Paul Caminiti, who uh, is with you, one of your colleagues at Institute for Bible Reading, talk about how we often read the Bible out of context, in little segments, and we do it in a very rushed way, and that we, we create this disconnect. How can pastors themselves, in their time trying to receive God's story, how can they practically engage in some of the things you're encouraging us in today? 
Yeah, um, I'll start with a story, a quick story that I heard about Dallas Willard. And he was on the phone for the first time meeting uh, one of the pastors at a, at a well-known mega church. And this pastor said, yeah, I got you for a few minutes. Thank you for your time. Um, what I, you know, we have a really fast paced church here. Um, we're in the, my family life, you know, we're in the soccer practice, piano practice, driving around, coordinating schedule, busyness. So what can I do to keep my heart spiritually healthy? And there was this pause from Dallas and he said, relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Guy said, yeah, that's good. That's good. I got that now. What else? What else can I do? Pause. Relentlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And that's all he said. That's all I have to say to you is find a way to not. And I think that whole that whole idea applies to pastors and Bibles the same way, like relentlessly eliminate the need to always be working on the Bible, orienting your, your use of it toward a teaching, a sermon, a Bible study you're leading. You have to carve out a time. And I, I would say it's essential that you get a reader's Bible, like whatever your favorite translation is. The reader's Bibles now are available in almost every major translation. So pick your translation, get a reader's Bible, that is a Bible without the modern apparatus, imposed on it, chapters, verses, footnotes, all that stuff, have a clean single column text, a Bible that reduces your stress level rather than raises your stress level. By the way, I know of research that actually says when people open a reference book, like a dictionary or a modernist Bible, there's an increase in their blood pressure. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Goodness. It's a real thing. And reading a technical manual that has all numbers inserted in it, is 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 harder for people like they have a different mindset than when they read a novel of course that's going to be true so the form of your bible matters and then relentlessly make sure right carve out time every week to just sit back with your bible with no agenda read through whole books some of them are short enough you can do it in a sitting easy some of them might take you a couple of times but just read don't read with an agenda don't don't stop and take notes don't underline don't do anything just let it wash over you um, with zero agenda um, zero study and just have a new kind of experience with the bible that doesn't even have a destination in mind you're just soaking it in on its own terms you're you're reading poetry as poetry you're engaging with stories you're just letting the bible be what the bible originally was in your life and then I think that will flow over into new things with your congregation. But Glenn, you, I might miss some new uh, teaching series uh, <laughs> I might have in the future. Like, how can I read something and not write anything down or exegete it? I mean, I, I'm being facetious, of course, but this is a hard practice. Right. It is hard. And, and our, our temptation, right? I mean, we only have so much time. And I'm like, we're like, who has time for this slow like, who has time for the slow food movement, right? We don't have time for that. Well, who has time for the slow Bible reading movement? But I'm like, I'm with Dallas Willard. I'm like, look, we make choices every minute about what we're going to do and how we're going to do things. We just have to have a different kind of life with the Bible. And, I, and again, I'm, I point to the regions and say, look, it's not working. Whatever we've been doing for the last several hundred years, the decline is what is the reality of Bible engagement is declining. And it's especially stronger now with younger people. So if we don't try something different, 
I think we're in serious trouble with the future of the Bible in the church. I don't think it's ever going to go away, but we're going to have to rediscover it for the kind of book that it is. And the, the thing is, if you just do this, you know, and just, you know, commit to it, the fact is over time, I mean, when you're done with that, that, that episode, that, that time with the Bible like that, and you do that on a regular basis in a rhythm, the fact is all kinds of stuff is going to come to your mind right? And save it for when you're out of that experience. I think the experience has to have integrity, has to be authentic. But when you're done and you're doing this over time, the fact is all kinds of richness will flow over into your other ministry. But we have to protect that time relentlessly, just like I'm protecting my time in the woods and the mountains out my back door, um, because they're right there. And I think it's, it's, it's a refusal of a gift if I don't regularly go into the mountains that I live by. And, and whether I'm a busy day or a whatever kind of day, I just have to commit to doing that. So can you think of stories where, where you've heard, um, and, or maybe even personal, like a personal story of just how this is changing people's hearts and minds towards scripture? Yeah. Um, my favorite ones of late come from Christian school students. Um, we're, we've got a group of schools in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that are, you know, this is my tribe. This is the Christian Reformed Church, their big Christian school movement. I know exactly what it's like to grow up in a Christian school from kindergarten through senior and high school, and you're getting Bible at school, you're getting Bible at church, and you've about had it with Bible. It's up to here. But now some of the schools in high school in particular have been doing, like, for instance, a New Testament survey class. But they realized that they've been talking about the Bible, but not actually having kids just read the Bible. So they're finishing a New Testament survey class, and they haven't read the New Testament, mm. which is kind of crazy if you think about it. So they said, let's try Immerse. Let's take Immerse, and instead of doing an academic class, let's have book clubs, which is what this model is about. Instead of Bible studies, it's book clubs. So they're reading whole books. Sometimes they read aloud in class. Sometimes they read as homework. They're reading 10 to 12 pages a day. And then they're coming together and just having a book club. Instead of intense academic study and text and dissection, it's a book club. It's open-ended questions. And these Christian school kids who have been inoculated against the Bible by having so much of it in every realm of their life are falling in love with the Bible again. They're saying... I never knew the Bible was this kind of book. I never knew you could talk about it this openly with people. If you have open-ended book club discussions rather than Bible studies. And I never knew that this is what it felt like to actually understand the Bible on its own terms. So I'm reading this letter from Paul to a church and I finally feel like I understand what was going on with those people in that church, what their problems were, right? how frustrated Paul was with their problems and how this was real life for the first time for me, instead of a bunch of doctrine and teachings and stuff I'm supposed to know. So to me, if, if that audience can be, can re-engage and rediscover the real Bible, I'm like, it can happen anywhere. Let's shift here. You know, personal 
This is how I can receive it. Do it in, you know, reader's Bible as a pastor. How does this impact things like Bible studies, preaching, even my, you know, teaching, preaching preparation? How can I then turn this to help help people in my congregation actually get the gist of exactly what you're talking about? Yeah, I think um, I think the journey to Bible engagement is a series of steps along the way. And I think one is we just have to break the stranglehold of the modernist Bible. And I, I think it'd be cool if people realized, look, for me to be serious about the Bible, uh, you know, I don't have to just study the modernist Bible, you know, with the imprint on it. I can get a reader's Bible and I can sit back and enjoy the Bible. And I'm hearing my pastor talk about do that so he can model that new behavior. I think in preaching and teaching the Bible, you know, there's this thing, you know, we even have a phrase like, well, yeah, you, you vaguely have this idea, it's in the Bible, but I need chapter and verse, right? Chapter and verse. If it's real, you, you know the address. And I think we got we to gotta throw that away. Like, what if we heard people talk about passages in the Bible and just reference them by context and content? Mm. So we talk about the story of the Samaritan woman in John's Gospel, and instead of saying John 4, Right? What do we say after Jesus, you know, has this intense experience in the temple, and then he has this one-on-one -on -one with Nicodemus, then he's traveling again. And we just reference it by the where it is in the flow of the book. Or Wow, that's fascinating. We're that talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're like, well, yeah, it's the Sermon on the Mount, but it's it's like Jesus, he's just inaugurated his new ministry. He's had it out with, with Satan in the wilderness, and he's he's starting to travel. Right in chapter four, he's just starting to travel, and then we say he launches his ministry with this inauguration sermon, right, laying out his program for his administration as the one who's bringing the kingdom to earth. And we learn to reference the Bible in natural ways so that people stop thinking that it has to always be talked about with chapter and verse. And I think then they'll start learning the flow of whole books not just street addresses for, for verses. And I think it's a new, that, that little thing will change the way people think about the Bible. So is, in some senses, it's st instead of saying, oh, it's at you know 411 Main Street, it's saying, go through town, and then once you pass Broad Street, there's the school on the left, go a little bit past that, and then take a right. Is that kind of what you're inferring? Exactly. Here? It's a natural way of talking about the Bible, right? Yeah. With, without an artificial system that has been placed over it, and is numeric and is is cold actually, and it and it actually I have more respect for somebody who knows a book well enough to be able to describe the town, right? Mm. If you can describe the town, I know you know that town, mm. right? Yeah. I know you know the book. If you can tell me where it is in the flow of the book and why it is where it is, and then let's talk about the content, right? So that change, you know, just if they if pastors can model new engagement practices. I think congregations will start to pick up on that, even if it's subtle, like you don't have to be over the top with it, it can be a subtle thing. Um, but they'll, they'll start to learn like, hey, I can, I can talk about the real Bible, not the Bible of the 16th century onward Bible. Boy, but that, well, all right, so getting back to the whole, you know, the town, instead of giving someone the physical address, but the town, I feel like even even if I'm giving that to someone, like, hey, here's how to get there, it makes me stop. I, I have to slow down and pay attention again. It's almost like it, you know, I'm not just waiting for my GPS to tell me when to, you know, turn or whatever, but I'm actually paying attention to the surroundings in a much deeper way. It's funny, we, uh, we go up to Canada every year. We have friends of ours uh, who are Canadian and um 
our GPS doesn't work there because we're too cheap to buy the the data plan. And so, so the lady has written us like these directions and they're hilarious because it's like, when you see the big red barn by that turn, make a left. And it's funny because I can drive that at this point in time, I've been traveling quite a few years up there, but it's like, I actually know that landscape super well, but I can drive to a place super close by here. And I couldn't, I, I could tell you like, yeah, take this road, this road. And then it's like over on the left, but it's not as detailed as what it is when someone writes out that, that thing. Uh, sorry. I'm like nerding out right now. This is and the parallel, huge. Is, like biblical books are like that landscape. I mean, mm. they were crafted by authors and there are, there are meta messages, not just small messages. And I think we've been taught with the modernist Bible to go for small messages, like this verse or this story, or even this small section. And we forget that, that authors and editors were crafting this as an old, because they were experienced holistically by audiences. I mean, when a, when a letter got sent to a church, someone stood up and read that letter. They didn't read a few verses and say, come back next week and we'll read the next ones, right? So it was experienced holistically. And so they were crafted. And so we miss the messages of whole books and how content fits together holistically and why this story is here and why this section is up front um, because we don't pay attention to the big flow. And so I think um, it's part of the Bible's message that we've been missing because we don't experience the Bible holistically for the most part. That's really good. And that reminds me, uh, probably about 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I were at, at a church and there was a, we were starting the book of Philippians and the pastor stood up very dramatically and said, someone just handed me an, an, an envelope and a letter and I'm going to read the letter. We thought, that's kind of weird. And it was the entire book of Philippians, but in the message. And the entire message for the day was he just read the message translation of Philippians. And I, to this day, can still remember thinking how brilliant that was. Why don't we always do series like this? Why don't we start every book series by just reading in one sitting aloud the entire book? Now, it'd be harder for some of the larger books, but it was absolutely fantastic. And that has always stuck with me, though that was 20 years ago. Um, so if entire congregate, if pastors get this in their personal lives, they receive it, they slow down, they eliminate her they begin to help their congregation see the whole town extrapolate out a, a little bit, whether it's a few months or a few years or even, even a decade or two. What implications would that have on congregations when the congregation fully gets the Bible as it's intended to be? What is the shade and the shape and the scope of what a congregation could look like if that were to occur? Yeah, I'll use a, an analogy. You know, I talked about hiking in the mountains right out my back door. Um, when I moved up here, like I didn't really know the system of trails. I didn't know the mountains very well yet. And I was a little tenuous and, you know, asking people when I'd go by, I'm like, where does this go? Or what happens if I go up that valley? Um, but even in the, the, you know, nine months that I've been here, um, I know my immediate vicinity like really well. So now I'm telling people, Oh yeah, if you take this ridge and follow it and climb, you know, you'll get this amazing view of the whole Western, you know, this whole deal. And, and it just becomes a familiar place that a place you feel comfortable in and you like, you can talk about it with ease and you know how to travel it. So I think if we, if we start receiving the Bible and, and living in it, this new holistic way, it becomes like that kind of a landscape. And I think, you know, if we buy into this drama, unfinished story improvisation idea of the Bible. Like, look, the whole book of Corinthians, 
you know, it was written to somebody in a particular situation, and we have to read it first as that word to them. And if, if you're trying to skip that step and just say, what is God saying to me as my first thing I'm looking for in the Bible? That's when we go wayward. It's when we go off the rails. So if we all learn to, to, like, we get to know it, we're like, wow, Paul had issues with Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a strange place, right? They had a lot of stuff going on, right? And he's, he's like, I wish I could be there all the time to help you guys, but I got other things to do. So I'm writing you these harsh letters. But we, we, get, to, we get the inside feel of that. And then we start putting all of that together. I think then, once we really know the Bible, like at length, and what it was doing then, that's when in our new act, our latest act, our open-ended act of the biblical story that we're in, we'll know better how to improvise the story. The fact is, you can't just lift stuff directly from even New Testament letters, you know, much less the older part of the Bible. You know, we're, we're wrong to think we can just lift it all and it speaks directly to us. That's why I love N.T. Wright's, you know, Shakespearean drama image, which you probably have heard about, um, you know, a, a new Shakespearean play is found, but it's missing the last act. So what are you going to do? Are you going to stage it? Are you going to perform it? So you get Shakespearean actors. They immerse themselves in the first four acts, really get to know it. And then you put them on the stage and you let them work out the ending for themselves. It's exactly where we are with the Bible. We have to live that same trajectory, the story of renewal in Jesus, um, the, the things we learn from the earlier acts, which are the Bible, that gives us guidelines for how to live today without telling us robotically exactly what to do in every situation. People want the Bible to be this kind of how-to book, which is the way it's often described, when actually it's the earlier acts of a drama and we're living in the later acts and the script for us has not yet been written. We can't look up our lines in the Bible. We can see what God was doing then. We get the, we get the trajectory and we live into it. And that, that is a whole new, I mean, that, that's a big discussion in itself. What does it mean to improvise the Bible? Mm. Wow, that so okay. So you know, you talk about. Uh, I mean, I've heard the importance of you know um, book studies or looking at the scripture in terms of community together as a book study. Um, the the reader's Bible, um, the idea of slowing down and just reading it on its own terms. Are there any other like specific things that you can think through that would be like, yeah, I also want to throw this and this and this in there too, or <laughs> I'm sure there's a, as a ton, but maybe one or two other pieces that are just really good to keep in mind as we are re-engage as we're engaging the scripture, immersing ourselves in it. Yeah. I think right right there at the heart of this holistic vision of the Bible, of rediscovering that, is kind of a recognition of the gift of literary genre. It really is a gift. I mean it's cool that the Bible is made up of all these different kinds of writing. I mean that's like real life, right? I mean it's like you and 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 when you get a literary Bible rather than a modernistic you know, piecemeal Bible, um, you're seeing the books as the literature that they were inspired to be, right? And so it gives us clues for how to receive a book when we realize what kind of writing it is, right? Hebrew parallelism in poetry, that, that's a, if you don't see that, and by the way, a two-column Bible, right? It's, it's a nuclear bomb for, for biblical poetry because it blows up <laughs> the you, you, the line isn't long enough to get the whole Hebrew line across, so you have to indent it. But then when you get to the second line, you have to do a different level of indent. And so what you get is a whole page full of crazy indentations, and you can't make heads or tails out of it. 
So if you get a single column Bible where you can see the Hebrew poetry, then you know how those lines work together. And they were made. They were written to work together. Sometimes they talk back to each other. Sometimes huh. they reinforce each other. I mean, they're doing different things. But if we're not seeing it, right, then we're not really receiving the Bible that it was inspired to be. And poetry is at the heart of it when you're in poetic sections. How, how Hebrew stories work, right? Why letters are so powerful as instruction, right? Why apocalyptic visions, what, how does that work, right? If we're not doing those, like first step, what kind of writing is this? That's also when we go off the rails um, thinking we're understanding the Bible because we're not understanding how different kinds of literature work. Things mm -hmm. we intuitively know in our world when we're picking up different kinds of writing. So that was the one other thing I would add is just be intentional about, you know, if pastors can tell congregations, this is this kind of writing. I, I, I have to tell you, I've heard a lot of sermons, right? I'm 61 years old. And I rarely, if ever, hear a reference to what kind of writing is this. Wow, that's, that's a, a great, great point. point. We don't talk wow. about it, but it's it's essential for good Bible reading and understanding. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, Glenn, I wish you would be passionate about what you're talking about. Yeah, me, me too, me too. <laughs> I mean, Doug and I are seeing your eyes light up and your hands move around. I wish our, our listeners could actually see you. You are passionate about this, which you should be, and you are, and we should be passionate about it, which is which is fantastic. Final question here. Um, I think Doug and I know what you mean by improvising and improvisation of Scripture. But just for some of our readers that may be scratching their head going, what do you mean improvising Scripture? I don't understand, Glenn. Could you unpack that for just a moment or two? What does that mean? Some people, when you hear improvisation, you think, oh, that means like there's no guardrails. You're just making up whatever you want to make up. There's like, how can the Bible be a book that you improvise? That doesn't sound right, you know? But if you think about comedy improvisation or musical improvisation, right? The things that have gone before make all the difference, right? That's why the way we should talk about improvising the story, which means living it out, living the same story out in our own time without being told exactly what to do. So someone who's doing musical improvisation, they're not playing notes off the page, but they're listening very carefully to everything that's gone before that sets the stage for what they're going to do, right? The key, the, the pace, the tone, everything is set by what has happened before. And then they are appropriately adding their piece in an improvisational way, in a way that is not scripted. But you can, there's, there's good improvisation and there's bad improvisation, whether it's in keeping with what's gone before, mm, right? It's yeah. an appropriate trajectory of what's gone before. And it's, cre it's both, Kevin Van Hooser has this great line, it's creative fidelity. Mm. What a great line. Wow. Creativity, but there's also fidelity. There you have to be faithful to the story that has gone before. And if you're, you know, you can go off from that story and it's not really the same story. Or you can be faithful to it, but creative within that fidelity. And I think that's that's the tension we're looking for. So what we want to do is um I think people, you know, if we're dealing with the fake Bible that we just pull verses from, it's easy to say, that's a direct word to me. I don't have to think about the original audience. And that's how I know what the Bible wants me to do. But then you're ignoring huge swaths of the Bible because they don't fit mm -hmm. that model. Mm -hmm. If you want to live out the whole Bible, I think this improvisational model of an unfinished story that we are now the players in the gospel drama at the end of the story, 
that's a beautiful thing. And it kind of brings life and creativity back to our understanding of living the Bible in the world today, rather than desperately looking for verses, you know, and trying to find the right ones. Yeah, that's terrific. A, a friend of mine, it reminds me of a friend in college who played trumpet in the jazz band. And I love listening to music, but I don't know how to play an instrument. And he was improvising at an event that I went to. And I said, um, how do you know when you've gone too far? How do you know when you're just kind of overpowering it and doesn't, you know, that's a lot of control given up by the, by, by your conductor. And, and he said, no, no, no. He said, I always submit to the music. The music never submits to me. And that line has always stuck with me because he said the beat, he said, I can go off it, but I must always come back to the beat. I, I can go away from it, but I must always come back. But I submit to the to the music. The music does not submit to me, and and that to me was really helpful in understanding not only improvisation of music, but also of this concept you're talking about with scripture. Yeah, and uh, obedience. I think obedience to scripture. We think of it as just straightforward doing whatever it says. Mm. Please tell me we're not going to do that. We cannot just do everything it says, right? Those words were not written directly to us. Mm. Some of them, yes. A lot of them, no. But obedience to Scripture, I think, is that kind of an obedience. It's improvisational obedience, um, you know, so that it, it fits the image, the, the, the vision of the gospel that we see, you know, especially, the, you know, the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is presented in the story as better than the prophets as the thing that the whole story has been pointing toward, and we need to live a life that is authentic and obedient to the vision of Christ that we get in the Bible, not just choosing the bits that seem to make sense and ignoring the rest. Mm. Wow. Well, Glenn, this has been a fantastic conversation. Doug and I have been furiously taking notes here. This has been uh, wonderful, and I'm sure our, our listeners are going to be enjoying this as well. Thanks for shedding light, on not just on what this means for us when we're preaching or teaching or prepping, but for our own journeys too. And for us to be healthy as people who listen to God, we better be listening to the Word that God gives to us. So thanks for helping expand our understanding of this and reminding us of what's so important. It's been great to have you on been great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. What an important topic for us to address here on the, on the MMP for Glenn talking about scripture engagement. So important. Absolutely. There was so much in what he said that actually I just felt really kind of did something in my soul that made me really want to dig back into some scriptures and to read it in a different perspective than yes. what I have. Yeah. One of the things that Glenn said that really struck me was the idea that when you're teaching or preaching or leading a Bible study, instead of saying, oh, this story happens in Matthew chapter nine, to say this story happens after this story, but before that story. And to that, that did something to me that has, it's really staying with me because we, you know, as a kid, you learn about address, right? Like, you know, chapter is like the street number and the verse is like, you know, the, or the street name and the verse is like the street number. And like, that's how I learned, like, that's why we have these things. Right. And, uh, and that's good. And there's a place for that, but but yeah, like a reader's Bible that he talked about would help me think through what's happening before and after. Um, 
And as much as I like that for quick reference, it really does chop the story up oh. in an inappropriate way. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, you think about the ways in which we watch movies. Can you imagine like, hey, JR, you got to check out this great scene. Uh, put in the disc and or whatever, pull yeah. it up on your thing, go to uh, 15 minutes and 28 seconds. Yeah, that's so And you true. just watch it. You're like, how, how does it fit within the rest of the context? Yes. And I think it's interesting because we are such a meme slash gif kind of people. Yeah. And so maybe it's like, we've even trained ourselves to think that way. And so when we get yeah, out of that, good. it's, a, it's a whole new way of thinking and a way of engaging the story as a whole. Yeah. And so, you know, one story or is it multiple stories? And we're just taught to see it as an almanac of multiple mini stories, but how does this scene in the one grand overarching story matter. And uh, I just love Glenn and his passion for this. I mean, obviously you can tell he's passionate about it when he speaks about it, uh, which is just wonderful. And so, you know, I, I love asking questions and that's a lot of my background on this. And so one of the things that uh, I've loved when I, when I studied in Jerusalem for the semester in college um, in the fall of 1999, um, I had uh, Jewish thought and practice every uh, every Friday morning from nine to noon with a rabbi and he taught, which was great. And I was introduced to this term Chavruta. It looks like Chavruta, um, C-H-A-V-R-U-T-A, but Chavruta, you have to hakalugi at the beginning there, Chavruta, and then wipe the mic off when we're done. Um, anyway, we'll keep moving. But, uh, but Chavruta is this beautiful thing that means friendship or conversation partner. And they do it in yeshiva, which is like a Jewish seminary. So instead of just have someone up front and then articulate, you know, some brilliant scholar or, you know, professor articulate to all the seminarians, here's what you should learn about the passage. They do this thing called chavruta. They break up into partners and the room is loud and they take the passage and all they do are ask questions of the passage, not in a doubting way. So for example, you could take the story of, and I did this um, in college, uh, I did it chavruta with... Um, the story of uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. And just said, just ask a hundred questions of that passage. You're like, what? I can ask like six of them maybe, but push yourself to ask a hundred and do it with someone else. And I began to do this and began to realize things like, ask questions like, how old was Isaac when this happened? I always thought he was like in third grade. He's a middle-aged man. Hmm. You're like, what? That changes the story. Then I have more questions. Why did he not overpower him? And then I started thinking, okay, so where do I, Abraham and Isaac talk before that story and after the story? And then you find out there's no recorded conversation ever again in the Bible between Abraham and Isaac after that scene. You're like, whoa, did Isaac intentionally cut off conversation? Did the author of Genesis intentionally like want to keep us in suspense? Right? So there's all these things that I'm now digging into the passage more than before. Why do we call it the sacrifice of Isaac when he didn't sacrifice him? The Jews call it the Akedah, which means the binding of Isaac. That's more accurate. So that why don't I accurate. call it the binding of Isaac instead of the sort of Protestant Christian, the sacrifice of Isaac? So all of a sudden, I'm deeper and more engaged in this story, scripture engagement, because I'm participating in the Chavruta. So just try that. Like, pick a passage, uh, 10 verses, 20 verses, whatever, and then just say... I'm going to try to generate 10 questions about the passage. It's not to generate more doubt. It's to just, I wonder about, or imagine if, or why is it that? And then just start following those little uh, rabbit trails and see where they, they end up. That has helped me immensely with scripture engagement. And that was running through my head a lot when Glenn was talking. That's really, that's really significant, JR. I, 
there has to be a way for us to unwrap question and doubt. I feel like yeah. those two terms have been wrapped together for so, so long that it's just unhealthy. And to yeah. question something is not to doubt it, but to, again, it engages you. It throws you deeper into the thing. Yeah. And how is it that in scripture we've just pretended like, oh, well, we can't, we can't do that. Or, or if we do, we're like in this really weird doubting space, but yeah, yeah. that's, that's really, really yeah. cool. Yeah. And with that, I try to separate the language between like questioning versus question asking. Mm. And so questioning would be like, yeah, you can question your faith or question someone on the witness stand. Like, were you there the night of, you know, um, that's where trying to poke holes in somebody. But when I'm question asking, that's different where I'm saying, help me understand. I want to learn more. And there's a different posture and even motivation. One is to poke holes in the veracity or the reliability of the scriptures, right? I'm questioning the scriptures. I'm questioning my faith. Can be a, a more doubting, cynical kind of thing. But if I'm question asking about the scriptures, then I'm doing that Havruta kind of thing of like, why did this happen? And what was the conversation like between Abraham and Sarah? Like, hey, I just got a vision from the Lord, Sarah. Like, how did that conversation go? <laughs> right? That's really cool. Um, a question I came up with recently in this was like, what did it smell like going up the mountain? Remember, they have a smoking pot. They're not smoking pot. They have a pot <laughs> that's smoking. Uh, but what, what did it smell like on the hike? Did it smell like charcoal? Did it smell good? Did it smell bad? What was it like walking up the mountain with a burning pot in their possession? How did they hike without getting burned? Like, how do Who's you do carrying that? the burning? Yeah. Pot, yeah. So anyway, I just think that takes the question, the, the story to a deeper level when we, when we are question asking, not doubting, is that true or not? But just enter into the story. And I think we're afraid of that. You know, Christians, we, we, we read the scriptures like you would go to a museum, right? Keep it behind glass, read the placards, don't touch it, move on. But I love that in Philadelphia here, you know, the Children's Museum is called the Please Touch Museum. That's awesome. That is. And uh, in many ways, that's how the Jews approach scripture. Please touch, pull it out, break it apart, build it back together again, splash in the water, like rebuild it, make your own thing. The kids are learning. They're exploring at the Please Touch Museum because it's like, please touch it all. Enjoy it. Have fun. Whereas we just walk silently through the gallery and we look at the things behind glass and go, oh, that's cool. I saw it, but I didn't engage with it. And I think that we need to move from visiting like adult museums, grown up museums and our approach to like going to the please touch museum with scripture. And it would totally, I think that's what Glenn's talking about. And it would, revel, touch it, it would, it would change, it would change our, I, I believe it would radically change our faith. Yeah. And the way that we see scripture, scripture would come alive. I remember having a class with Len Sweet once and he asked this question that was insane. He said, what does this passage smell like? Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, that is the strangest question I've ever heard. <laughs> but yet, I mean, you just mentioned it, you know, yeah. like walking up the mountain, like, man, what is a, what is a. What does a, a pot, a, a smoking pot sound yeah. smell like? Yeah. You know, what does it sound like? What do you hear? What do you see? And I think, I think what happens is when we put ourselves in that, it gives us this beautiful opportunity to enter into those places. To I mean, I remember, and, and so he asked that question. I remember reading the story of um Jesus calling the disciples and they're out on the boat, and Peter has that, you know, moment where he realizes he's a sinner, get away from me. And then it says, and, and, you know, they had this big catch and they come in and then they all leave. And for a moment, like I can't smell fish the same way, but when I think of discipleship, it's the smell of rotting fish huh. because these disciples left this beautiful catch of fish 
or to, and, and just to realize that's man, so funny that you bring this up because I did get a chance to go now it's 2000 years later, but I, I went on a fishing boat for a day on the sea of Galilee I'm and so all jealous day right now. it smelled like stinking fish huh. and I will never, that smell won't leave me. Like say your olfactory senses, right. like your, your sense of smell is the greatest memory trigger. And for me, like occasionally I've smelled, smelled that exact whiff of what that day was like. And I'm like, oh, I'm immediately taken back to fishing on the Sea of Galilee with, uh, with those guys. So, um, yeah, I mean, how about when Jesus is like cooking them breakfast, you know, the smell of that. Seriously. Uh, And so that's this idea of scripture engagement is so important for us as pastors individually. Right. But also how do we teach our congregations to do that? And, um, and, and wrestling through that should always be something, you know, that we do. And, and it is jolting to say, stop reading your Bible. What? No, n- engage with scripture. Yeah. And that's a different, that's a shift. <laughs> totally different. That's not nuanced. That's a total new way that I think Glenn is helping us think through. And so, um, yeah, so let's, let's give people some resources. I mean, Glenn mentioned that he works for the Institute for Bible Reading and, um, and, and IFBR is a great organization. I know the leaders of that organization very well. They're doing fantastic uh, stuff. So IFBR.org, mm. if you want to know more. They're kind of a think tank. They're trying to start a movement and resource churches. They're starting even with like Christian schools, with high school and middle school students. It's super cool. Of helping them. Yeah, it's great stuff. So IFBR.org. And one of the main resources they um, supply people in this movement is called the Immerse Bible. And, um, and when Glenn talked about a reader's Bible, right, those were some of the, like, that's, that's the reader's Bible that immerse. Um, and I think it's, I think it's Thomas Nelson or is it Tyndale? Tyndale. Tyndale is, uh, has published and, uh, I've got a copy of immerse Carter. My 13 year old has a copy of immerse and, uh, we're, we're reading through that together in, in acts right now, which is great. So, um, those are a couple of resources. Um, but there's also other readers Bibles, right? I mean, that, that, that they exist, um, that are great as, as Glenn said. So you can just Google those like readers Bibles, you know, or Bibles without verse numbers. Yes. I mean, you can easily find those as well. So, yeah. um, and then yeah. even Glenn's book, um, saving the Bible from ourselves is definitely a fantastic read. Um, and I think it kind of like this conversation, it really peels back, the curtain behind how we got where we are and how to jump out of that. And so, yeah, JR, some questions um, that that you might be kicking around for us to think through. Yeah, I, I think there were two main questions that came to mind of just thinking, if your congregation were to read the Bible like Glenn talked about on this episode, how different would your church be in six or 12 months? I think that's a great vision question to consider. If we embodied this approach and shifted this paradigm, how would our church be different? And then I think that leads to a more personal question for us. If I were to read the Bible in my personal time with the Lord in the same way that Glenn talked about on the episode, how different would I be six to 12 months uh, in my engagement uh, with Scripture and in my knowledge and my relationship with Christ? So those are a couple of questions that, uh, that stuck out to me. As I as I heard Glenn, yeah, I think the only other question I throw in there is what what one thing that Glenn talked about would help you see the Bible in a new way. Um, and so, yeah, pastors and kingdom leaders, we're really grateful for the time that you guys invested in this conversation. And our prayer is that it really pushes you to Scripture and you begin to not just read words, but to engage with the God of the Bible, to engage with the God behind the Bible and the God.